So, listener, about a year ago, I had all but finished writing a two-part review for the final season of Game of Thrones, the finale season, season eight, for its one-year anniversary. However, given the pandemic and the Floyd riots and just the general mood of terror and chaos and despair that was uh, prevalent at the time, I decided that I didn't really feel like finishing it. I just didn't think that the world <laughs> needed needed any Game of Thrones analysis at that time because I think there was a real world dystopia that everyone was living through and you know it, it would it would be a little uncouth to make people hear about my um, thoughts on a fantasy dystopia but since I think right now we're in a, a little lull in our real world dystopia I figured it would probably be uh, the best time to put out my review since I don't know where we'll be in a year from now <laughs> anyway <laughs> This was originally going to be a, a video essay. It was going to be a much bigger production, but I don't have the patience for that right now. I also don't think anyone really cares about Game of Thrones anymore. But, you know, this thing I had written was collecting dust, and I would like to put it out into the world. So I imagine, you know, and I imagine some of you are aggrieved Game of Thrones fans or, or former Game of Thrones fans like me, and you might appreciate it. So I figured I would just put it into a podcast, make it into a podcast, a, a, a special Special episode, special Schizotopia event. I guess I'll just say, or, you know, to, to, to try to put uh, an introduction on this. I have talked on this podcast before about how there is kind of a politics of fan aggrievement. I've talked about how I think people project their growing lack of political agency and feelings of powerlessness into cape fantasies. And I think the same thing would apply to the medieval fantasy that is Game of Thrones. And I just want to say I myself am not immune to that, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm no better than the rest of you schmucks, okay? <laughs> don't, don't, I would never condescend anybody about getting too caught up in fantasy worlds because I think I'm the most guilty of this, actually. And I think um, what I've done with in writing about Game of Thrones is, is prove that thoroughly. So fair warning, uh, this is a particularly self-indulgent episode, and it's a little different normally than the the show that I do. I guess I should put a, a, put a big spoiler warning here. If you are still one of the people who never watched Game of Thrones, or or thinks that you know you're you're going to care enough to watch it in the future, um, yeah, there's there's definitely spoilers in this. You're gonna want to um, watch the entire series before <laughs> you come back to this. But you know, if if you don't, if you really don't give a shit about Game of Thrones at all, you could probably just go ahead and skip this episode. I will not be mad at you. You will not hurt my feelings if you don't want to listen to this. Uh, but otherwise, if 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 you do, if you're interested, if this isn't going to be a particularly long episode. So I guess get get your sheath up your swords, kids. Put put your put your swords and your sheaths and and saddle up on your horses, cause. Uh, we're going to take a little ride beyond the wall, so stay tuned. Hello. 
Hello, and welcome to this very special episode of Schizotopia, Unlosing the Game of Thrones, Part 1, Dungeons and Dragons. D.B. Weiss and David Benioff, the writers for HBO's Game of Thrones, are referred to as D&D by fans of the show. I think this is fitting as they have served as something like a pair of dungeon masters for one gigantic televised Dungeons and Dragons campaign. For almost 10 years, they adapted George R.R. Martin's notoriously unfinished Song of Fire and Ice fantasy novel series into one of the most successful TV shows of all time. The show has always been self-aware about this game aspect. The opening credits were always accompanied by a game board version of the politics and conflicts of the mythical Westeros and East not to mention the many scenes of characters looking over battle maps that looked like a cross between chess and risk. If you've ever played Dungeons and Dragons, you know how difficult it can be to turn a voluminous tome of rules and lore into a night of fun for a room full of people. So imagine having to do that for an audience of millions. So before I begin this very unflattering two-part review, I do want to take a moment to praise D&D for recrafting Martin's massive, Byzantine, and unwieldy novels for the small screen as well as they did for as long as they did. And I do want to mention that there were a lot of side stories and characters and plot lines in the books that I think lesser men would have tried to incorporate into the TV series in ways that I think would have been disastrous um, had they done that. I actually think that throughout most of the televised Game of Thrones series, uh, D&D actually showed a surprising amount of restraint. Roughly 19.3 million people watched the final episode of Game of Thrones. That number doesn't include all the pirate peepers watching either. While that audience is still small compared to the 76 million who watched the last episode of Seinfeld, for example, it is huge for the digital era. Along with Marvel's Endgame, Game of Thrones might be one of the last holdouts for authentic, popular monoculture. It's one of the last things we, the public, actually had in common. And so, what did we get? How did our DMs conclude our great and epic quest? Our dragon mother, our righteous little Targaryen upstart, who we watched grow from a naive and abused princess in exile into a world-hardened Iron Lady who became something as close to being a revolutionary as is possible for a monarch, goes quote-unquote insane within the course of six episodes and becomes a mass murderer. And I can safely say, reader, after spending the better part of a decade agonizing over the fate of Westeros, that the Game of Thrones finale, as far as entertainment is concerned, is the single biggest disappointment of my entire life. Jon Snow, our resurrected hero and messiah stand-in, becomes a passive groveling schmuck. And after years of flirting with the Night King, Yes, I said flirting. Think back to the earlier seasons. Now you can never unsee it, can you? I expected one sexy showdown between the dragon-blooded bastard and the Darth Icy Maul himself, but this never happens because of Arya's surprise prison shanking. After this, Jon spends the rest of the season dragging his feet through the mud until he finally works up the courage to heroically murder his girlfriend in cold blood. Maybe Ygritte was only half right. It's not that Jon Snow knows nothing, it is just that he wants nothing, and as it turns out, 
That is exactly what he ends up with by the end of the show. The sudden death of the Night King, followed by the instant powering down of his undead legions, reminded me of the Phantom Menace, when young Anakin accidentally blows up the control ship and turns off the droid armies. In fact, Season 8 of Game of Thrones ended up being a lot like the Star Wars prequels, and that in both instances, the writers decided to conclude their convoluted political dramas by having their respective protagonists, quote-unquote, go insane and commit mass murder in a Hail Mary attempt to make their respective stories feel darker and deeper without putting in the actual work. And I have to say, much like a certain mentally unstable Targaryen, I spent several weeks after the original Game of Thrones finale sitting in the dark, pulling at different threads, and entertaining different possibilities, trying to untangle what happened to our beloved medieval fantasy dystopia. Above all, what season 8 left me with was not just a sense of disappointment, but a sense of total bafflement. Despite having an extra year of production and a budget of $90 million, season 8 feels like a soap opera that found out it was being canceled mid-production and had to rush a half-ending last minute rather than the grand finale of the world's biggest television show. Fans on social media were quick to point and laugh at plastic water bottles and Starbucks cups that found their way onto our screens like Easter eggs from an overworked and underpaid cast and crew. The questions and complaints I have about this season could fill a fantasy volume on their own. However, I don't want to go through the litany of grievances that have been explored elsewhere and that I am sure will be explored by others in greater detail. Instead, I want to focus on the central problem that I think gives rise to all the others. After mulling over my disappointment and confusion, I believe I can sum up the problem with season 8 in one sentence. The writers decided that Daenerys Targaryen would be the quote-unquote true villain of the story without actually giving her enough time or reasons to be. Let me break it down further. You thought Danny was good, but actually she was bad. That's it. That was the big move. That was D&D's great strategic assault on the finish line. As a result, every other aspect of the show, its world, its characters, and plot lines, arguably decades in the making, are bent, broken, or simply discarded in the service of the quote-unquote shocking twist that our breaker of chains queen was the real enemy all along. And it isn't just that the other storylines become muted, it's that they feel like red herrings in retrospect. Subconsciously, it turns the entire show into one big gotcha. Almost every other complaint I have about this season can be understood this way. The sudden passivity or stupidity of all the other heroes and villains boils down to the fact that in the final season, they only exist as extensions of Danny. If I want to be as generous as possible, I think what D&D were going for, and you know, I hate to have to get all meta on you, reader, was a meta twist. Evil Danny was a righteous comeuppance for our years of bloodthirsty voyeurism. What? You didn't really think she was different, did you? Haven't you learned that absolute power corrupts absolutely? Every brainwashed fool in history thought their dictator was going to be the good one. And to be fair, I think that this twist works in theory. The story of an innocent, naive princess in exile who rises to become a world-hardened revolutionary, only to succumb to her personal demons and to be put down by the man she loves, does seem to be in keeping with the themes of the show. It was, after all, Martin's cold-hearted Machiavellian take on Tolkien fantasy that got audiences hooked on Westeros in the first place. And anybody who made it to the end of this story is clearly a glutton for punishment. It is here, however, that my bafflement fully subsides, as the cynicism becomes more and more clear. The trouble is that Season 8 has neither the time nor basic logic to make this big move effective. Yes, Danny suffers personal loss in this short season with the death of 
Jora, Miss Andy, and yet another one of her dragon children. She further suffers the loss of John's affection and possibly the loss of her royal claim when his true heritage is discovered, but she suffers no real loss of power right up until her untimely demise. The barbecuing of King's Landing, her ultimate turn to villainy, happens after she has already won the battle. Why? Because she needs to make a point? If so, then to who exactly? Is it to avenge the people she lost who would be horrified by her actions? Is it to scare John into sleeping with her again? The best explanation we get is that that is just what Targaryens are genetically predisposed to do. Now, I hate to get all woke on you, listener, but I was hoping for a conclusion to this epic fantasy saga that was something a little more interesting than dragon bitches be crazy. My point here is that if Danny had actually been facing defeat, her turn to villainy would have at least made some sense. We could have empathized with her as the audience as we had in past seasons, even if we were terrified by her actions. But clearly, I'm overthinking what was a cheap ploy to serve up some flaming hot dragon violence porn while getting the audience ready for our disgraced queens et to offing in the next episode. The TV series surpassed its source material around the end of season 6. One of the more juicy rumors that made its rounds through the internets came after Ian McElhenney, who played Sir Barriston, told some fans that Martin had completed his books already, something I've long suspected myself, listener, and made a deal with D&D to wait until the show was over so that their adaption wouldn't have to compete. Martin has denied this, of course, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Here's another fresh conspiracy for you. Martin lied about his plans to D&D and allowed them to make the worst possible finale so that he could then release his much better books later and reclaim his throne from those two pretenders. And don't be fooled, listener, by his Santa Claus-like appearance or cheerful manner. You know as well as I do the kind of sick shit this man is capable of dreaming up. As is usually the case, however, I think that these conspiracy theories are much more interesting than the reality of the matter. D&D had their sights set on bigger projects. They were in talks with Disney about getting their own Star Wars trilogy, which has since been canceled, by the way. They should have just passed the torch of Game of Thrones to someone else and let them be king or queen for a season or two. As I said before, with more time and care, the evil Danny ending could have been good, even great. It's not like the show was losing popularity. But for reasons that probably had to do with pride, they decided to try to just get the whole thing over with as fast as they could, and it shows. Conspiracy theories and jokes aside, I have one explanation for how Game of Thrones ended that makes sense to me. I think that D&D felt obligated to be, well, centrists for lack of a better term. I think it is safe to say that since Game of Thrones first premiered in 2011, the world has become a more politically polarized place. If one runs through possible scenarios for concluding Game of Thrones, most of them run the risk <clears throat> of sending a message. And because Game of Thrones is no longer an obscure fantasy novel series for edgy nerds in the 90s, but instead has become a kind of sports event for an audience of millions, the meaning of it all becomes much more contentious. If Jon Snow becomes king, it's boring old patriarchy. If Danny wins the throne, it's a feminist Hillary Clinton metaphor. If the Night King wins, it's a heavy-handed environmentalist message. If Cersei wins, well, she is a certified girl boss, but the Lannisters are also completely Trumpian, so no dice there either. In other words, how do you please everyone while offending no one in a post-Brexit, post-2016 US election, post-entertainment is just entertainment world? Well, in keeping with our Dungeons & Dragons metaphor, D 
D&D ran out of game books. Our dungeon masters are tired, but they refuse to call it a night, so they decided to improvise. They draw new makeshift maps on the husks of old cereal boxes. No one has the stats to beat the Night King, and no one actually wants to do the quest to get the stats to beat him, so they off him with a fudged critical hit instead. It's 3 a.m. The last slice of pizza is long gone. The room is growing restless. Screw it. Blow up the map. Declare Brand the winner. Nobody saw that coming. That's woke, right, kids? You aren't, uh, ableist, are you? And there you go. Game over. And here, oddly enough, is where I sympathize with the writers the most, yet also where I find them to have been the most perverse. There was no pretty way to land this ship. I will give them that. Yet the way they did seems almost intentionally vindictive. The final episode of Game of Thrones went out of its way to pay homage to Tolkien and the return of the king. We have Jon Snow returning to the wildling lands like Frodo returning to the Shire. We have Sansa saying goodbye to Arya as she sails off to the Unknown Lands in the West, just as Sam said goodbye to Frodo before he sails off to the Undying Lands with the Elves. We have Brienne of Tarth completing her Chronicle of Westeros, just as Frodo finished his Chronicle of Middle-earth. And of course, we have a new king, a benevolent ruler in the form of Bran, just as we had Aragorn take his crown at the end of the Lord of Rings trilogy. But this is where it gets screwy and even downright evil, listener. In Return of the King, Sauron, the all-seeing eye, the demonic magical panopticon is destroyed. But in Game of Thrones, the all-seeing three-eyed raven is made the new king. In other words, whereas the destruction of the surveillance state is the happy ending of Lord of the Rings, it is the literal enthronement of the surveillance state that is the quote-unquote happy ending of Game of Thrones. That's not an homage to Tolkien. That's an inversion of Tolkien. And while maybe in D&D's mind it was like making Gandalf the new king, the more you think about it, the nastier it feels. Just as an aside, take The Dark Knight for example, a movie that has its cake and eats it too with regards to this subject. Batman uses an all-seeing surveillance device to defeat the Joker, and Lucius Fox helps him reluctantly on the condition that he will immediately destroy the device after they use it to beat the Joker. Even in this very pro-war on terror movie, there is still a pro-civil liberty anti-surveillance state message in it, albeit a muddled one. It is also unfortunate because Bran was actually one of, if not, my favorite Game of Thrones character. Yes, I know, please withhold your boos and angry messages. I understand Bran's character was always somewhere between on the spectrum and catatonic, but what made him so interesting to me was that he was our anchor into the deep mysteries of the show, of what was really going on in Westeros and beyond the wall. And shrinking all of those mysteries down to make him a benevolent dictator was literally the biggest cop-out I have ever seen. It was almost like the drama with Danny was there to distract you from the metapolitical conclusion that what our fantasy telenovel War of All Against All really needs in the end is a technocratic leviathan that can watch and manipulate everyone into a state of order. Our modern world won't even allow us to escape into dark medievalist fantasies of ages past anymore, even in the mythical land of Westeros, we must bow down to the surveillance state machine. Alas, to conclude this rant, um, as I would conclude any of my normal reviews, which I do write sometimes, um, I'm going to give <laughs> Game of Thrones Season 8 my lowest rating of DOA for Dead on Arrival. But before I go, if any of you are thinking to yourselves, well, who are you to Monday morning quarterback D&D two years after the fact, no less?
You think you could have done better, Max? Well, listener, as a matter of fact, I do think I could have done better. And the only time I feel personally obligated to say what I would have done differently is when I give something my DOA rating. I think if you're going to drag somebody's art publicly, you are obligated to say what you would do differently. So, in part two of Unlosing the Game of Thrones, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I will be giving you all my fantasy fiction retreatment of how I would have done the Game of Thrones finale differently. So, until then, thanks for listening. Next to another is alongside yet another Wiener, wiener, wiener.